It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman. David, it is 500 episodes. Over nine and a half years, this is episode number 500. That's why I'm wearing a bow tie and nothing else. <laughs> oh, boy. Ah, so glad we're on radio. And we have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. 500 episodes, Ralph. Hello, everybody. Well, the 500 episode is going to deal with workers and unions by a union leader who really speaks his mind. You know, we've talked a lot about the Writers Guild strike on this program. That strike is over, pending the ratification of the deal reached between the Guild and the major studios. And we may have the funniest picket signs, but there's a lot of other labor action going on across the country. Auto workers, hotel workers, hospital workers, service workers, and actors are all flexing their labor muscles. For the first time in a long time, the labor movement seems to be playing offense instead of defense. This doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It takes a lot of organizing. Our guest today, Chris Townsend, is a veteran trade union organizer. He even runs an organizing school. Organizers like Chris usually work far under the radar, but we've asked him to step up to the mic. So today he'll join us to discuss the details of his work, as well as the labor battlegrounds we should keep an eye on. As always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our relentless corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokiver. But first, let's talk about a labor movement on the offensive. David? Chris Townsend is a 44-year trade union worker and organizer. He is the retired political action director for the United Electrical Workers Union and was the International Union Organizing and Field Director for the Amalgamated Transit Union. Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, Chris Townsend. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Chris, you know, we've had many discussions over the years in Washington, D.C. about the state of the labor movement. And you were working, it's time for the United Electrical Workers, which arguably is the most honest union in America. The head of the union for years never made much more than what an electrician of many years' experience would make. But we would talk about why union membership was declining, why the union leadership, including the AFL-CIO, wasn't aggressive enough they were too obesant to the Democratic Party, which was turning corporate year after year. And you were pretty frustrated. But now you've retired from the United Electrical Workers. You're more optimistic. You're more upbeat because there are all these union organizing efforts, many of them by young people in their 20s at Starbucks, at Amazon warehouses and elsewhere. And we all see that as spontaneous. But what you're saying is that there are traditional unions that are putting workers in these stores and warehouses for the clear purpose of galvanizing the rest of the workforce into signing up to form a union. Can you elaborate on that? You told the corporate crime reporter, it was like putting a handful of salt into a pot of water, knowing that by salting the water, it will boil a little bit faster, end quote. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for that introduction. Yeah, I mean, the situation that we face, I mean, I've been a union man since I got out of high school. I bypassed college or it bypassed me. And, you know, I'm one of probably some thousands of union organizers out here 
here that are grinding away, but of course we're never heard from, we're invisible. The media avoids us. They would rather select other people to speak for us and spin their tales, sometimes correctly, sometimes not. But but it's important to hear from some of the actual organizers on the ground because things are changing and it's long overdue. I think it was already mentioned here, the significant, not dramatic, but the significant uptick in strike struggle is the result of strikes that have been suppressed for so long. And bargaining is, you know, you conduct it as best you can, but the laws of the land are weak that protect workers and would force the laws and they're not enforced. So strike struggle is overdue. I don't think that there has been anything but, you know, righteousness associated with the Writers Guild strike, screen actors, the railroad strike, which was broken by Biden's foul hand. And we're certainly facing a strike struggle at UPS. My union, UE, has just ended a two-month strike at the biggest locomotive manufacturing plant in the United States, Wabtec, up in Erie, Pennsylvania. And in my time, after I retired from the UE, which was hard for me to do, but I returned to a union I had been when I was first a teenager, which was the Amalgamated Transit Union. But I went back as the organizing director and the field director. And it was a moment in time that I saw and I grabbed it. You know, the ring only comes around you know, infrequently in your life. And I became the organizing director and was the most successful organizing director, new organizing director in the history, recent history, at least the living memory of that union. And I began to sense that there were changes afoot, demographic, uh, political, overdue, piled up business that workers were finally, you know, being forced to respond to. And after you know, I think the first 30 years of my time in the labor movement was almost all defensive, fighting one rear guard action after the other, trying to hang on to whatever we could hang on to. But then here we come into the current decade and we begin to see some offensive action. Now, one of the things and I explained to the corporate crime reporter that we had done in my time at ATU was when Larry Hanley was the president of that union, when he was still alive, he passed away. But it was Larry Hanley, myself, and long-established U.S. organizer, Richard Bensinger. And we put our heads together and we said, we need to experiment with something more bold, more aggressive, and maybe set an example, maybe pull some folks along with us. And we began a small organizing school, sort of an informal collective. We call it the Inside Organizing School. We began it at the very end of 2017, and it was an unusual school in that it was sponsored by, initially it was sponsored by the Amalgamated Transit Union, but it was a multi-union school. And one of the things that we did was to put a very heavy emphasis on trying to design campaigns where we could send people into these workplaces to help initiate or salting. Salting is not a new thing. It's nothing we invented. It's as old as the trade union movement. I had been assault as a young man in six different workplaces, you know, when I was young enough to have the energy to do that kind of thing. And in any case, it's really, as you said, Ralph, it's a way to move it along faster. It is not a substitute for a trade union leadership that would seriously launch campaigns of organizing, but it is at least something that we can do as the left wing in the labor movement, whatever there is of it to push on the union and to initiate campaigns. So we ended up having a number of successful campaigns by pulling together you know, seasoned, experienced 
aggressive trade union organizers, bring them together with, frankly, some of the younger faces that are emerging by the hundreds of thousands from the workplaces, from the colleges. And we see them, you know, throughout, you know, society, you know, playing their role as new leftists, frankly. And we combined some of these folks with some with an experienced eye, and we were able to initiate tremendous amount of trade union activity, Starbucks among it. And I was just as surprised as anyone else that it caught on. But I think what we're responding to is a younger workforce that is assessing the future and it's bleak for them, unless there's some movement building here and trade union struggle conducted to push back against these employers and push back against these degraded and degenerate governmental forces who sponsor these corporate forces. You know, everyone well, here knows none of these situations exist absent support from the government or at, at worst, total neglect. Well, we're going to talk about the anti-union laws led by the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947, which the Democrats have never made a serious effort since then to repeal when they were controlling Congress. But the tide of public opinion has turned in favor of labor unions now. Majority of the American people have a favorable view of unions, even though not more than one out of 10 workers in the U.S. belongs to a union. And another poll showed that the vast majority of the working class, between 70 and 80 percent, would gladly join a trade union if the opportunity presented itself. But I think what most people don't realize is you can have a successful union drive in a workplace, a factory, or chain store locations, and the the union can be certified by the National Labor Relations Board, but nothing happens unless there's a contract negotiated and signed by the employers and the union. And that's where the hurdle really emerges, because after an exhausting effort, to combat union-busting efforts by corporate law firms infiltrating workplaces and dividing and ruling, spreading a lot of propaganda and fear, the petition drive succeeds and it gets certified as a union. The employers can start delaying negotiation for months and years. And one of the reasons this is possible is because we have the most anti-union laws in the Western world. So what would you do if you were telling Congress to reform the labor laws? How would you do it? Yeah, there would be a number of things. And uh, I'll just build out, Ralph, some of the awful truth there about what it is. We have seen in recent decades a dramatic decrease in the number of union elections. Now, let's get it on the record, everybody here, that you only get a union election when you've already run through the withering fire from the employer. Virtually none of these employers in the United States will respect your right to organize. I assert, and we continue to run our organizing school, and this is how I open the school, by declaring what everyone agrees, which is the workplace in the United States is a dictatorship. And if you're willing to challenge that dictatorship, create a rebellion against it, you might be able to build a union. But if you look At the statistics, the number of elections, the number of those campaigns that actually get that far, which is only a small number. Most of them are incinerated, liquidated, poison gassed, fired, terminated out of existence before you ever get that election. But if you get that election, the labor movement is winning 
depending on which statistics you want to use, winning about half of those elections. Now, that may seem encouraging to some, but if you study the size of the units that are voting in those elections, in other words, how many people in those workplaces, compared to 30 and 50 years ago, the size of the units has also dramatically shrunk. So we're bitten from both ends. We have fewer elections that are being run, and then we have most of those elections, including far, far fewer people. So, of course, with a very aggressive and a pathologically anti-union corporate elite in this country, we've seen what some would call the decline of the labor. It's not the decline of the labor movement. It's the, you know, the deliberate destruction and repression of the labor movement. And it leaves us in this situation where then you come to the politicians. And there are many things that they can do, the vast majority of which they won't do. Everyone here is aware the Democrats have had a majority in for at least two years in four recent presidents, and they will not move the kinds of legislation that we need in order to at least begin to address the labor rights crisis in this country. And we also have a situation where, and I, I laugh out loud when Joe Biden puts the crown on his health, a la, you know, a la Napoleon here, and declares himself to be the most union president in the United States history. Well, it's absurd on its face. This man doesn't do anything. He went up to Michigan because Donald Trump was going to beat him there. He didn't do it. But this man could do many, many things as the president to enforce. For example. For example, well, let's get some companies' names out here. Starbucks, Amazon. I could mention 150 others. Engaged in systematic repression of the workers' rights, violation of the law on a wholesale basis. Where is the Department of Justice? investigating this conspiracy to mass repress people's rights. Now, maybe there's legal scholars that would sit around and say, well, I don't know if that's really against the law. Well, that's the law that matters to working people and matters to the labor movement. Biden is the president. He could put that machinery into motion, become incredibly aggressive. He could summon these CEOs to the White House and read the riot act to them. Now, let's get it on the record. When he crushed cynically and ruthlessly the railroad strike, a strike that was 40 years overdue, a strike where workers in large measure were voting to be able to take a day off. So we see industrial serfdom in that industry has sort of returned. What did Biden do? He didn't do anything. He undermined the strike. He could have led that strike. I think maybe after his trip to Michigan and his handlers, I think maybe they realized that had they led that railroad strike from the top, it would have been incredibly popular incredibly successful, and he would have actually looked like a legitimate leader. But instead, he tries to have it both ways. He likes to talk a little bit about it, but he doesn't want to actually do anything. And putting the machinery into motion to prosecute this wave of corporate crime, of course, you know, Ralph, your entire career, you've seen, you know, how the they let off the gas pedal, so to speak, when it comes to actually enforcing law. Same problem is uh, with the labor rights situation. But one of one of the abuses that you're talking about is that companies regularly fire yes. the leaders of union organizing efforts in the workplace. And under the weak labor laws, if the fired worker can afford a lawyer and get reinstated, all they do is get back pay. And that may take three, four years. So it's almost never a situation where these fired workers are reinstated. And he hasn't, he hasn't spoken out against that from the no, White exactly. House. Exactly, and, and let me add a little bit to what you brought up there. 
workers are fired in a shockingly high number of union organizing drives. Frequently, that information is never collected because the union drive may never even get out of the crib so that it may not even make the statistics. I, as a you know, 44-year union organizer, either as a worker in the shop or as a staff organizer in several unions, I have personally seen thousands and thousands of people fired. And, you know, I remember, what, 2018, I live in Alexandria, Virginia. My union, the ATU, when I was the organizing director, we organized the city-owned private bus company. And it was one whale of a fight. Now, this is a city completely controlled by Democrats. Let's get that on the record. But once we won that election, after confronting rank, racist, union busting, and enormous expenditure for this, once we succeeded in winning just for spite, the employer, the Dash bus system in Alexandria, fired both of our union and LRB election observers. Even though they had lost the election, they fired both of them. Well, only one of those workers went back to work. One walked away and said, tag with it. But the piece that I wanted to add, Ralph, to what you had said, even if a worker today, when they're fired, has the stamina to hold their breath long enough to go through the sometimes multi-year NLRB legal process to eventually find that they're being ordered back to work. First of all, many employers appeal that for more years. Or even if they are ruled back to work and the employer consents, that worker is only awarded back pay minus their earnings. What is earnings? Unemployment compensation or other jobs that they had. So it's quite frequent that workers never are entitled to any back pay or no significant back pay. Let's be very, very realistic here. I don't think there can be a labor union movement in the United States under present federal laws. It's just there are just too many hurdles, too many delays, too many licenses for these corporations to bust up the situation. They have endless money to pay specialized corporate law firms who are skilled at infiltrating and intimidating and obstructing essentially defenseless workers who have no backing trying to organize a factory or a chain store. I don't think it's possible. And and I'm amazed that you can listen to what the FFL puts out, what labor unions leader put out. They almost never mention card check. They never mention repealing Taft-Hartley. They don't force the Democrats who get elected in no small part because of union support to put these labor law reforms in place. I had a meeting with Richard Trumka when he was head of the FFL-CIO, and he told me, during the John Kerry candidacy against George W. Bush in 2004, he said, just give me card check and I'll organize huge numbers of workers. And Kerry said, yes, I will support if elected card check. And Obama said, yes, I would support card check. And they never said anything after that. Now tell the American people what a card check is and how it could facilitate union organizing. Sure. A card check would be an alternative to an election. Everyone says, well, an election sounds like a fair way to do it. No, it's not. The workplace is a dictatorship. It is inherently coercive to have to work for somebody. You have very few rights, even, even if they were enforced. You don't run things. You don't challenge the employer. You do what they tell you to do after they have hired you. You know, you have no control over that hiring process. So once you're there, you're at their mercy. So in order to try to pretend or continue to pretend that these union elections are somehow legitimate elections, 
is preposterous. And I blame, in many cases, the labor leadership in this country for allowing this farce to play out as long as it has. Think about it here, folks. In order to explode the illegitimacy, the lopsided nature of these so-called union elections, what election can anyone think of where there are two sides? There's the pro-union side and the anti-union side. And one side, the employer, doesn't even have the right to participate in the election. You know, no Democrat, no Republican would ever accept the kinds of election conditions for their own election that we as workers are forced to accept in terms of this, where one side, the employer, can pay people to sit through the, your speeches, can sit there and be subjected to your threats, that one side in that equation can you know, physically fire people and remove them and punish people, intimidate them, and then at the end of that process claim that somehow this is a fair process. It's nonsense. I don't know who believes it. I sure don't. I don't think most workers believe it either. So in any case, a card check would be an expedited process where the very act of signing a union card and joining the union would then be tallied up in a legitimate... Isn't this what they do in Western countries? With labor, they, they don't have these elections that are rigged. They just have a majority of the workers sign up or a supermajority sign up. Isn't that true? In some countries, yes. And and I should say, even in the United States, the card check process is where if a majority of people have signed those union cards as checked against the payroll sheet, you know, the number of employees and the, the union is granted recognition. That does happen here occasionally in certain situations, even a little bit in the public sector. But it's it's not the promotion of that as a tactic, as a structural change, as you found out, Ralph is lost. And I again, I hold the labor leadership at all levels in this movement of ours, what's left of it, responsible for not keeping this issue in front of the politicians that they fund and help get elected. But this is a forgotten. The card check's not even talked about anymore. And you had mentioned, Ralph, a few minutes ago, the Taft-Hartley Act, which would not be the only problem that we face, but it contains as a package some of the very destructive facets. This well, let's, let's talk about Taft-Hartley in the context of the current UAW strikes, the auto worker strikes that are starting against the auto companies. Let's talk about the ban on secondary boycotts in Taft-Hartley, which prevents other unions from helping beleaguered unions trying to get a better contract for a decent livelihood. Tell us, what is a secondary boycott that is now illegal? It would be the picketers from the struck plant traveling to other corporations' workplaces that were doing business with their company and then picketing them uh, and asking for support from their workers, perhaps staging uh, a strike in sympathy. And this was a common tactic, a very effective tactic, and it was banned as part of the reaction against the 1946 strike wave, and that kind of came together by 1948 as what became known as the Taft-Hartley Act. And that's one of many destructive, insidious aspects. The, the whole phenomenon of what's known as right to work, the fact that a union is unable to compel the workers in, it's about 26 or seven states now, on the private side to contribute anything financially towards the cost of representing them. Even though those workers have the complete freedom to demand representation. They receive everything that is negotiated, but there's no financial 
obligation. Anyway, that right to work phenomenon is another dastardly component of the right to work package of really destructive legislative attacks on labor. But again, I, I don't recall the last time, other than my union, UE, I was also a 25-year staff with United Electrical. They remember Taft-Hartley. They think about it. It has meaning to them. I don't know how many other unions or union leaderships even think about this anymore. What's wrong with the leadership of the AFL-CIO ensconced in that big building on 16th Street in Washington, D.C., a block from the White House? We don't see a recognition of the conflict that they're in. They represent union workers who don't have to worry about the minimum wage of $7.25 an hour federal. They represent union workers who usually have pretty good health insurance plans. So how do you expect them to represent the 90% of the workers who are not unionized and are being driven into the ground, many of them, in so many ways, with minimal benefits, non-livable wages, and so on? How do you expect the FLCIO to turn around if they're not surrounded by pickets of workers saying, you're not representing us, you're not fighting for us? You're following the corporate Democrats. You don't talk about $15 minimum wage except for SEIU, which started the effort and showed what could be done. What's wrong with these people in this big building on 16th Street? Give us your forthright reaction to that, Chris. You know a lot about what's going on there. Well, I would submit that the vast majority of working people in the United States have no idea what the AFL-CIO is. The few that might, the small percentage that might, might have an opinion about it. The labor leadership in this country is invisible. And that was somewhat of, a, of an annoyance for them up until the last decade or two. And, and, and in fact, the leadership of the AFL-CIO, which is, you know, it's the sum of the affiliates. So you have, I believe it's 60 unions who comprise the AFL-CIO Federation of Unions, and then you have several officers and leaders, and now led by Lee Schuler from the Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. You know, these folks that conduct the business and act as somewhat of a de facto spokesperson for the labor movement. But the fact that they have been submerged into invisibility, I think they're very comfortable with it. And we know that the Democratic Party has a hotline to the AFL-CIO building. We know that an unknown but significant number unknown because it's never released, but never made public, but a significant number of the executive council of the AFL are members of the Democratic National Committee. I've never been able to find out who sits on that Democratic National Committee or how many labor leaders are on it, but the, the organizational tentacles of the Democratic Party reach deeply into a growing number of unions. And this is what leads to the farcical early record early endorsement of Joe Biden many months ago, 17 months out from the election, on a voice vote with no debate, no announcement that it was going to come up. And then it was kind of a rush job to then not even talk about it. And my understanding and was- didn't ask was, anything in return. It was unconditional support of, course, of Joe yeah, Biden of without course, anything right. in return. That's right. Which says something about the bargaining skills of these so-called union leaders. My understanding was there was one, possibly two dissenting votes in that voice vote. And then it was immediately put to bed and act, you know, it's find no trace of it almost. And this is just another visual reminder of how subordinated the general trend of the labor leadership is to the Democratic Party. 
Now, I will say, if you corner any of these folks and you talk to them, most of them will confess readily that we're in a bind and that the Democrats are unreliable and that they won't produce or don't produce. Or maybe they they bailed out my union once or they passed this, which we want to recognize and it's helpful. Yeah, those things are worthy of note. But the general trend is complete neglect or even joining in on the beating, so to speak. And the fact that the AFL-CIO sat still and Biden crushed the railroad strike, just one of the most shameful chapters in recent years. That they And some of them even tried to rationalize. And that was a strike that was righteous. It was long overdue. Those four corporations, it's a monopoly industry of epic proportions. That industry is so overdue for a convulsion like a labor strike, you know, it's sad. And they're endangering the public, as the uh, crash in uh, Ohio showed. They want to reduce the number of people running a train to one. And it's now two or three, these freight trains. And what's at stake here is uh, the existence of American labor. The the global corporations want to replace uh, all of them with robots, artificial intelligence, whatever you want to call it. They don't make any bones about it. Jeff Bezos would like to have the whole warehouse run by robots. They don't like workers. Robots don't make any demands. And that's part of what the United Auto Workers are fighting against, that they're going to lose their jobs, never mind not get adequate pay. I like the speeches that are being made by the head of the United Auto Workers, Thane. He's bringing in the executive salaries. Mary Barra makes $29 million a year, the highest ever paid auto executive, which comes up to maybe fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars an hour, and they're paying low tiered auto workers twenty bucks an hour or twenty two bucks an hour, and the veteran auto workers maybe up to thirty three bucks an hour, and she's getting over fourteen thousand dollars an hour, not counting benefits and perks. There's a long history. The UAW had weak leadership, they had some corruption There was a GM bankruptcy, the bailout under Obama in 2012 by the taxpayer of GM and Chrysler. And the UAW had to agree to two tiers where the younger workers started out doing the same work as the older workers, but getting much less pay, not to mention other concessions the union had to make. So this is makeup time for the UAW, which is why they have so many support, support around the country for what they're doing. And they're not just fighting for themselves, but the view ahead is very worrisome in the sense that, you know, once you get away from home health workers, plumbers and electricians, they're trying to automate everything, including white collar jobs, no longer just blue collar jobs. If they can't export the jobs under these corporate managed trade agreements to fascist and communist dictatorships overseas, who know how to put their workers in their place? So it all comes down to whether this is going to become not just a labor movement, Chris, but a political movement that enlists all Americans who have a stake here in having decent livelihoods and deconcentrating a corporate-dominated economy into local economies where they're not controlled by absentee rulers in London, Tokyo, Chicago, New York, and what have you. What do you see there in terms of turning the labor movement into a political movement at election time? Well, I'll start by commenting that I could not be more proud of uh, relatively new president, Sean Fain from the auto worker. 
any of you that follow the twists and turns that played out in that union, which led to his election, would have to be elated. And what we're seeing with this strike is finally the unleashing of the anger, the righteous anger of the huge swath of the membership in that union for what has been done to them over the last 40 years. Now, it, it strikes me as if it wasn't such high stakes, it would strike me as comical uh, that Joe Biden and his handlers discover that this is a big slice of the workforce that they have ignored at best or even participated in abusing over the decade that were. So now they suddenly find out that their probable opponent, Trump, is going to go out and get there a day ahead. So they had to run and catch up. And we all saw how long Mr. Biden spent on the picket line, minutes. But he did go. This is worthy of note. But the issue here is, what is he going to do to compel these corporations to concede to these just, reasonable demands of these workers? And beyond that, Ralph, as you point out, the history of auto negotiations is not complicated. It's the history of all manufacturing negotiations. The employers have already decided they are leaving. It's just a matter of how quickly they do it. It should get on the record. There's more auto workers in Mexico today than in the United States, unionized or unorganized. And this is the political neglect or willing conspiracy with these big companies to deindustrialize the United States. It's a process that's been very successful in my lifetime, and it has a ways to go, but it seems to be doing. So one of the things that the Biden administration needs to do is you know, put tremendous pressure on the unorganized corporations to allow their workforces to organize if they want to, and most of them would, and again, to insert into that situation and prevent the union busting and whatnot, which all of the unorganized auto companies use. I'll remind everyone that just a few months ago in Buffalo, New York, the Tesla Corporation fired 40 workers in one of their plants in Buffalo. He boom, crushed the union drive in five minutes. That'll never be adjudicated to any great effect. But instead, that corporation is fed the mother's milk of subsidies that are difficult to comprehend. So the bad behavior is actually rewarded in many cases by these political leaders. And, and you know, this auto strike is really the creation of the Biden administration in some part because of their uh, virtually unlimited subsidy of the electrical vehicle industry, which the United Auto Workers is not opposed to. But what it realizes is what good is it to bargain a contract with the big three, settle it, have the first paycheck come with the improvements and then see, you know, another third of your members laid off with plant closings and transfers to unorganized plants. You know, it's a much more comprehensive crime being committed against working people. And as long as we get platitudes, we get the ridiculous, you should have a fair contract. These are meaningless platitudes. What we need is a real serious presidential effort to really rein in this wave of corporate crime. Let's talk about the workers themselves. You got about 40% of union workers voted for Trump in 2020 after they knew that his promises in 2016 were as phony as a $3 bill. And his whole business career was anti-worker, anti-union to begin with. And let's say he sold them a bill of goods with his bloviated rhetoric in 2016. What's the excuse for 40% of the unions voting for Trump in 2020? Is it because the union leaders are not educating the rank and file? They don't meet with them. They don't have 
like they used to in the old days, book clubs, the union newspapers are extinct. It used to go out weekly. How do you explain it? You certainly don't exonerate that kind of political masochism, do you, on behalf of 40% of the union workers? Yeah. In certain unions, it's more than 40%. And I should say, uh, listeners may not know this, but most unions conduct extensive polling of their members. Now, that calls into question what kind of a union leader would have to poll their members to get connected to them or find out what they're thinking. But the modern large union will do this. I suppose it has its merits. And when these polls come back, this is something that's gone on for several decades at least, it's very worrisome for many of the union leaders because they see large, large sections of their membership who are supporting overtly anti-union politicians like Trump, for instance. But I'll tell the story, my own personal story, on the, what was it, January 7th of, what was it, 2021, I guess, when we had the, the day before, we had the, you know, the fascist hordes storming the Capitol and whatnot. I called the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, and I said, we have to do something to educate our members. We knew that there was a large section of our members in the Amalgamated Transit Union that were sympathetic or supportive of Trump, and even worse. So what are we doing? Are we going to run an educational campaign? Are we going to make a systematic effort to go out and engage in conversation about the political realities and whatnot? Well, nothing was done. Nothing was done. And in most of the unions, nothing is done and nothing will be done. So it's just uh, they leave the members up for grabs. They don't make any effort to connect with them. They cancel their magazines. They cancel their newspapers. They, you know, they, they post a website and just say, go online and you'll learn everything you need to know. And it is a woeful neglect that has led to this situation where we cannot, there may only be eight and a half, nine percent of the workforce that's unionized, but we can't count all of those folks as active, conscious union leaders and supporters. We see this erosion when our leadership so systematically neglects the education. And then on, on the two-party trap, Ralph, you know, look, you, nobody knows that any better than you. And, you know, that this is a, a trap that we're in. And it, you have to struggle against it. But first of all, you have to recognize it. You'll never challenge it if you're not even willing to recognize it. And this is a perversion of, it's a, I guess you could call it sort of a variation of democracy, but it's certainly nothing that has ever served working people very well. And it needs to be challenged. But again, if you're never engaging in a conversation with your members and their extended families and whatnot about how this system is structured to work against you, then it only becomes a, you know, every two or four year personality contest or a beauty contest. And it, it leads to this kind of debased situation. I, I should say, Ralph, maybe I'll mention this in this same breath. You had mentioned a few minutes ago about the public relations polls that indicate that trade unions are held in much, much higher regard than they have been in some recent decades. Well, that same polling will reveal that probably the lowest status that the presidential world has ever had of either party, people no longer look to the political leadership for very much authenticity or legitimacy. And let's not forget the union leadership. The, sta the standing of the actual union leadership amongst their own members by those same polls will reveal that it is also eroded and become debased. And I think a lot of it is there's no bold, imaginative certainly not progressive leadership, to take on these questions. And as we're seeing with Sean Fain and the auto workers, if you provide sensible leadership 
that deals with workers' realities, they will follow. Uh, we saw that in rail up to the point until it was busted. Sean O'Brien at the Teamsters, you know, put an, an immense machine into operation, told Joe Biden and settled a very improved contract over what they would have had. But, you know, when you have a labor leadership that is lazy, unimaginative, rarely challenged, has a very timid view, a very limited worldview, and they see their role more as administrators as opposed to leaders, this is the modern situation that we we face. We don't have much of a leadership, sadly. We have an administrator group, and they have administered the decline. As it said, you know, the, when the Democrats started taking money from Wall Street, they took the great economic issues off the table. That created a vacuum for the cultural issues, which the Republicans were delighted in exploiting, including Trump, who, by the way, was heard to say during the 2016 campaign, American workers are overpaid. And he wrecked the National Labor Relations Board when he became president, selected by the Electoral College. And he continued to freeze the minimum wage and opposed any efforts on Capitol Hill to raise it. And still 40% of the workers are voting for him, even with the polls today. So there's a lot of work to be done, a lot of interpersonal meetings in union halls, what's left of them, a lot of connection in the neighborhoods. It's got to become a political electoral movement if we're going to have anything that we call a labor movement. Well, on that note, we're, we're out of time. We've been talking with outstanding labor organizer, Chris Townsend, and we want to continue on these themes in the coming months, Chris. Can you tell our listeners how they can contact you if you have a website? Well, our inside organizing school, believe it or not, does not have a website. We've grown the thing with word of mouth only, and it's sustained over six years, bigger than ever. So uh, there's that, I guess. In other words, you do person-to-person organizing and not remote type of organizing, if, if there's such a thing. And you make Russell Mulkyber, the editor of the Capitol Hill Citizen, very happy because he believes in print and getting it to people so they can hold it in their own hands, talk to one another, and not be sucked into all the mismatch and distraction and nastiness of the Internet. Thank you, Chris Townsend. We want to have you on later to elaborate some more dimensions of the kind of agitation organization that's going on at various large corporate workplaces. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. We've been speaking with Chris Townsend. We will link to his work at ralphnaderradiohour.com. Up next, we're going to have a little free-form conversation with Ralph about various topics. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber. From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, October 6, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. The U.K. Education Secretary, Gillian Keegan, is ordering all mobile phones banned from schools. Gillian Keegan will order schools to outlaw smartphones during lessons and also in breaks in a bid to end disruption and make it easier for pupils to focus. Keegan believes that mobile phones pose a serious challenge in terms of distraction, disruptive behavior, and bullying, a government source told the Daily Mail newspaper. It's one of the biggest issues that children and teachers have to grapple with, 
so she will set out a way forward to empower teachers to ban mobile phones from classrooms. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulcott. Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scroven, along with David Feldman, Hannah Feldman, and Ralph. Okay, Ralph, we want to talk about a few things before we go. First up, David. Ralph, there was an interview with you in the Washington Post that some people misconstrued. You were quoted as saying, we are stuck with Biden now. And then you said, I know the difference between fascism and autocracy. I'll take autocracy anytime. What did you mean by that? I meant that the Trumpster GOP is a fascist party. They believe in the corporate state, repression of the vote, censoring curriculum, censoring books, violent talk. They want to distort elections even beyond what they're distorted already. They have positions openly restricting the child safety net, like the child tax credit that cut child poverty in half until the Republicans blocked this extension in January 2022. They've come out against women's issues, clearly against a significant minimum wage. Some don't even believe in a minimum wage at all. Against worker health and safety regulations. They want to protect the massive tax cuts so the super rich and the big corporations pay less, a lower rate on the tax schedule than a working plumber or electrician or even a teacher. They are all for a bloated military budget. You know, Wall Street can do no wrong. And they amplify Wall Street in a whole variety of restrictions on civil liberties and civil rights. And while the Democrats are bad, and I said in the article that Biden was terrible on Wall Street and empire, they don't go that far. And so there's always a little wiggle room under autocracy to start the process of reversing. But the repression under fascism is pretty total and becomes extremely dictatorial. The one thing I did say was the Democrats don't suppress speech. And a couple of your emailers took me up on that. What I meant was the the Democratic Party. They don't suppress curriculums in schools and ban books and suppress the vote. But to give the listeners credit, they do suppress candidates of third parties. And that is suppression of freedom. And I should have qualified that. But sometimes you do all these qualifications being interviewed by a reporter, but they never appear in print because of space and they want space for photographs and all that. But on this one, I should have qualified it. The Republicans are very adamant and determined in repressing the vote all kinds of ways. We know them. They've been published. But the Democrats haven't gotten enough blame for repressing candidates that might give them a minor challenge from a Green Party or some other party and make our democracy more competitive at election time. And they should be denounced for that. Has the anti-majoritarian strain always been there in this country, but now they get amplified through social media and podcasts? Yeah, because the Constitution is written to support minority rights. That's what the First Amendment is all about, to protect dissent. But it went overboard with the Electoral College, where you can get a minority of votes nationally and still get elected president as the Republicans did in 2000, 2016, for George W. Bush in 2000, and for Donald Trump in 2016. They lost the national popular vote, but they won the Electoral College vote. 
And so that is a very pronounced bias in favor of minority rule right at the top of the political ladder. But as some listeners suggested wrongfully, I never said vote for Biden. I believe that people should vote their conscience regardless. I don't believe in tactical voting because that gets down to subordinating yourself to the least worst of the two-party duopoly. But when we're talking about the 2024 election, it's not just the presidency that's up. It's the House of Representatives, the Senate, governors of states, state legislators, local elected officials in cities and towns, villages around the country. And you've got to decide as a voter, where do you want to put your modest pressure or send your modest signal? And it's best to vote your conscience. Ralph, could you clarify what autocracy is in case, you know, to the casual reader, autocracy and fascism might seem kind of synonymous? Could you clarify what the distinction is? Yeah, autocracy has many faces, and one of them is restrict electoral candidates. And so one aspect of Democratic Party autocracy is they work overtime to keep parties like the Green Party off the ballot, which is a a violation of their First Amendment rights, among other things, to speak freely, petition, and assemble as candidates. And the Democrats have helped to mature the corporate state in Washington. They've allowed Washington to be taken over when they're in charge more and more by Wall Street. They put in nominees coming from corporate firms into positions of regulatory and cabinet power. Look who they put in as head of the Federal Reserve or Secretary of the Treasury or the current Secretary of Defense is from Raytheon Corporation. He was executive with that manufacturer of weapons of mass destruction in Massachusetts. And they have opposed agendas in their party plank to go after corporate crime, fraud, and abuse. They don't take a stand against the takeover of Medicare and Medicaid by corporate contractors, especially under the Medicare disadvantage program. So the examples can go on and on, Hannah. They have been shoulder to shoulder, not entirely, because they have a good Federal Trade Commission now and, and a good head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. But on the really big issues of empire and Wall Street, they're really shoulder to shoulder with the GOP in maturing an ever deeper corporate state. As I said previously, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt sent a message to Congress in 1938 to establish a commission to investigate concentration of corporate power in our country, he added the phrase warning Congress that, and I'm paraphrasing him, that when private power controls public government, that is fascism. He used those words. So would it be wrong just to follow up to say that the Democrats and autocracy, they're promoting their own interests, they're selfish, whereas the Republicans, the fascists, more actively out to get us is kind of what I'm taking from this. It's are they selfish or are they actually malicious? Well, they are malicious, obviously. I mean, you can see in how they treat minorities, how they try to block people from voting in certain districts and precincts. Their language is in accordance with that prejudice. There's uh, the bias against immigrants goes way beyond abusing the asylum 
right by immigrants. There's no doubt about the difference on that score. But, you know, on the, the ownership of the commons by the American people, the public lands, public airways, the Democrats are just like the Republicans. They shove it over to control by corporations, radio, TV stations, timber, gas, oil, coal companies, and public lands. And I mean, there's a whole list of examples where the Democrats have disgraced their earlier heritage decades ago as being somewhat in favor of working families and their rights. Democrats will eat me if they catch me, but Republicans are actively hunting me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can put it that way. The Democrats let the corporations take over, and so do the Republicans. But the Republicans are harassing more and more of the people and intimidating them and blocking them from voting and making clear that they want them out of the arena of power, except those that rubber stamp the Trumpster party line. Speaking of Republicans, Ralph, yesterday you tweeted out this. I want to quote it to you and then have you elaborate on it. You wrote that the eight renegade GOP members who voted against Kevin McCarthy are consummate hypocrites. They say it's to stop excessive spending, mostly on the social safety net. You didn't challenge massive corporate tax cuts, corporate welfare bonanzas, and fraud against the government. All of which expands the deficit, which is supposed to be their concern. And that was clearly stated on C-SPAN recently in an interview of Congressman Bob Good from Virginia, the area of Thomas Jefferson, ironically. And all he could do is talk about excessive federal spending. And the moderator never asked him a question. Well, you're worried about deficits. What about all these tax cuts on the super rich big corporations? What about hundreds of billions of dollars a year shoveled out to corporate welfare? Bailouts, handouts, giveaways, subsidies. What about the fraud on Medicare? $60 billion a year there and the fraud on the military contracting process, etc. No, he didn't mention it. And C-SPAN never asks these kinds of questions. They just let these politicians bloviate without asking fair and critical questions and following up. So, Ralph, talk specifically what's going on in the House of Representatives with the former Speaker McCarthy. Well, eight defiant Republican members of the House, amazing energy. Imagine if we had eight progressive members of the House with that kind of energy. They pulled the rug out from Kevin's majority. And so he ended up with a slight minority, and he could not defeat them, so they ousted him. Here's what people need to know. A speaker under our Constitution can be selected from anybody in the country. They don't have to be members of the House of Representatives. They could phone up Newt Gingrich, heaven forbid, and say, we want to vote for you to become speaker. Come on down. Or they could call former Governor Christine Todd Whitman, a liberal Republican of New Jersey, and say, we want to have you as a speaker. They could call up Steve Scrovan, Hannah Feldman, David Feldman. Say, do you want to be speaker? Now you're talking, Ralph. Now you're talking. (laughs) See? So a lot of people don't know that. The second thing is in Article 1, Section 5 of the Constitution, a two-thirds majority of the House can expel Matt Goetz and Bob Good and the other renegades. They could just expel them from the House with two-thirds. Well, they could get two-thirds because— 
the Speaker McCarthy Republican supporters are outraged, and they're in the vast majority of Republicans in the House, and the Democrats would like to get rid of the renegade Republicans. So we'll see how that plays out in the coming struggle. But I have to believe that this is going to damage the Republicans in next year election. I want to thank our guest again, Chris Townsend. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call The Wrap-Up, featuring Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. Subscribe to us on our Ralph Nader Radio Hour YouTube channel. And for Ralph's weekly column, you can get it for free by going to nader.org. For more from Russell Mokhyber, go to corporatecrimereporter.com. The American Museum of Tort Law is going virtual. Go to tortmuseum.org to explore the exhibits, take a virtual tour, and learn about iconic tort cases from history. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager, Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the 501st episode of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Keep reading, keep thinking, keep buying books. The online progressive bookstore in our country that I would recommend, so you don't have to go to Amazon, is at Counterpunch. Look it up. Hi, this is Jimmy Lee Wirt, and welcome to the wrap-up. We have a lot to get to. First, let's continue our conversation with labor organizer Chris Townsend. Steve, David, Hannah, you want to pitch in here? And we'll also have Chris Townsend give us the website where people can get in touch with what he and his colleagues are doing to revive the labor movement. Chris, it always seems to me, having been part of two strikes myself, that in the, the media treats the companies as if they are the parents. And the workers are the unruly children. Many of these media companies depended, of course, on corporate advertising. And recently in the New York Times, one of Obama's treasury counselors, Steve Ratner, wrote about how the UAW is overplaying their hand. They're asking for too much. They're being too ambitious. Let me interrupt that. Steven Ratner is the person who, on behalf of Obama, in the Treasury Department in 2012, presided over the bailout of General Motors and Chrysler. The bailout for General Motors was over $30 billion. He's talking about the workers overplaying their hand. Sorry for interrupting you. Go ahead. No, that's okay. I just wanted to have you comment on that as a, that's kind of how everything seems to be framed. Sure, sure. And it, if I was Steve Ratner, it sounds like a terrible bargainer. Because you always well, have to yeah, ask for I mean, more. You always have to be ambitious. Yeah, I'll, I'll respond by repeating something that I said in the very beginning. Nobody's ever heard of Chris Townsend and probably never will. I'm one of the most successful union organizers for my generation by the numbers, not by some claim that I make, but by how many workers have joined the labor movement because of work that I have done. But of course, that doesn't qualify me to do anything. When the media calls, they're looking for somebody who has an opinion about new organizing, not somebody who's actually done it. And again, the labor movement falls and fails completely to remedy this. There are other successful union organizers out there, but again, they're invisible. And what that leads to is this preposterous and farcical situation where you have Joe Biden, you know, if you wanted another indication of how out of 
contact he is with reality in the labor world, he selects two people, Gene Sperling and Julie Sue. Nobody in the labor movement other than a tiny number of leaders have ever heard of either of these people. They've never organized anything or negotiated anything. They have no trade union background. Yet the president dispatches or tries to dispatch these two people to go to Detroit and somehow do something with the auto workers. And I couldn't have been more proud about Sean Fain to say, no, thanks. We don't need more tourists coming through here that want to, you know, a trip and a photo op. No, we'll take care of the bargain. And we know what we're doing. And you mentioned Ratner, a miserable, wretched figure who will always rationalize the impoverishment of workers. He will give, oh, yeah, the unions are a good thing. And they did, oh, but in the end, you as a worker are always going to have to accept lower and less and worse. And I think this is what these elites are seeing now. There's an increasing number of workers, working people, especially concentrated on amongst the young workers who say, no, thanks. I'm tired of people giving me articulate explanations, highfalutin explanations about why I'm supposed to work harder for less. No, thanks. And I couldn't applaud this more. And our school, our inside organizing school, really is a motivator of that. You have to fight back. You have to begin to organize. You have to stage or see if you're able to stage a rebellion in your workplace to join a union. If you're fortunate enough to belong to a union, you have to build quite a bonfire under your leadership so that they will finally carry out the mission of the union and actually, you know, produce for the rank and file. And, you know, I've seen in my 44 years, I mean, this country has been hollowed out, you know, in a catastrophic fashion. I'm from central Pennsylvania. I don't even want to go home to where I was born because, I, first of all, I had to leave thanks to Jimmy Carter and his catastrophic economic policies. So I left. And when I return now, 45 years later, it's a cesspool of reaction, poverty, decline, ignorance, all of these things. And these are the absolute byproducts of this kind of political leadership. And of course, you know, the forces that make a great profit off of this, we can at least understand that. We can understand Joe Biden wanting to do these things. He's going to get reelected or so he hopes. But what do working people get out? And all of the the massive self-induced pathologies that we face in this country. I mean, this, this, I don't know, I, I marvel sometimes in a horrified way to just see how eroded and how, you know, if you're honest with yourself, I know there are folks that like to kind of always get up in the morning and try to deny the reality. Maybe that's, maybe I should try that. But, you know, we're, we're just in with gun violence and drug addiction and mental illness, homelessness. I mean, these are the expressions of the societal decay that we can see. And all of them trace back in one way or the other to the reduced ability of working class people to make a half decent living. I mean, all of these things spring from this. And, the, you know, the politicians who have created this to the eternal discredit and damnation, you know, away with all of them. We need new leadership that will rebuild and, you know, put a forward momentum, you know, going forward and make these employers pay. I mean, this is the most thing. Not only are we subsidizing these employers, we're not taxing them. And then we've reduced wages to the point where they can literally walk away. Why are there so many billions? That number multiplies almost as fast as the homeless. So I, I, it's a not a complicated formula that I would see. But I, as we've been hammering on here, the labor leadership 
currently, in my opinion, too often or most of the time, fails to recognize these things and it doesn't want to leave. And it doesn't. And the, the result is these spasmodic situations that emerge. And there are some unions that are in better shape than others. But, but there's going to be much, much more of this. And I welcome it. I see this as a good sign. This is, it's very difficult. I've been on strike. Stephen, you've just been on strike. It's, it's hard when you go on strike. I mean, you've got to hold your breath. But the results on the other end will be gratifying. And, you know, this kind of upsurge is overdue. It's been repressed for too long. And it's time to unleash these workers and, and the unions that at least want to fight to move forward. David? Thank you. I'm going to ask a, a devil's advocate question. Did Trump's protectionism and his cracking down on immigrants create conditions that were conducive for today's flowering labor movement? No, it was public relations. We have, you know, for all of the discussion of all the restrictions on immigration. We have more immigrants today than ever. I welcome them. I know why they're coming. We've made a mess in their home country, thanks to our foreign policy. You can connect that dot, and we should. But when I see, you know, the very cynical, corrosive, what was the best description I ever heard of Trump was he was a vulgar authoritarian. He appeals to people on many levels, but one of them is he's the strong man. He's the confident, strong man, of which the Democrats are not strong and they're not confident. <laughs> you know, so he at least presents this Hollywood-like figure of authority and calm demeanor. And, and some people like that. But I think this is, you know, I have always said that when we look at 2016, we look at 2020, we should note that the rise of Sanders and the rise of Trump were both fed from the same spring. Of discontent. Yes, there's some differences there, but yes, the widespread content. Ralph, when you ran, much of that stream, it wasn't as large when you ran, but it grows as the condition of the working class is systematically worsened and destroyed. So now we have this situation where we have the two political parties that we're allowed to have faced with this situation where this stream of discontent and unhappiness feeding one or the other or both, and they have to decide what they're going to do about it. And, you know, it's it's very dangerous time in a lot of different ways. I don't have any confidence in the Democratic leadership that they're going to do this. Certainly, we have to take a look at Trump and, you know, recognize his criminality and his fascistic tendencies and whatnot. But this is really one of those junction points where, you know, it's going to give. It has to give. And the labor discontent some of these upsurges. I don't. What about Davis' point on protectionism, Chris? Ah, ah. Yeah, protectionism. You know, I, I, yeah, I will remind you, Ralph, the very first time I met you was 1993. You were down at the Capitol like I was. I was working for UE and we were combating NAFTA. And I remember I gave you a pamphlet of Marx's speech on free trade from 1846. The young Marx, young Karl Marx, wrote a speech. He never got to give a speech, but he wrote it. And he came down in favor of free trade. And for folks who ever studied that, you know, might raise an eye. Marx was in favor of free trade. Well, it, it bears repeating. He took that position as a young man and probably one of his more left phases, that if you unleashed the free trade mechanism, you would so impoverish and crush people that they would have no resort but to rebel. 
And he says at the end of his speech, in that he was speaking to an economic club where he had intended to, he said, in that sense only, gentlemen, I support free trade. Now, I have never supported free trade, and I'm not a believer in worse is better or any of that. But I think we're seeing literally Marx's dictum played out here, that this is what is crushing it. I mean, we have lost in this country, it's over 100,000 manufacturing establishments in the last 30 years or so. It's ghastly. Whole cities, whole regions have been emptied out. Now, in terms of the protectionism, it never seems to work because the, the, the corporations are heading for the exits and they're going to continue to head for the exits. And we have no, I guess this is actually our industrial policy to deindustrialize. And when Trump got up and tried to create, just like Biden now tries to create some imaginary claim that manufacturing is coming back to the United States and all this preposterous. The numbers show that manufacturing is still leaving the United States, maybe going to different countries, you know, and the but same did renegotiate NAFTA. Well, yeah, but I'll, I'll caution on NAFTA. NAFTA gave it a name, NAFTA, WTO, all the, but all these things were happening before that because none of these corporations need a permission slip from the country or from the government to leave and go to a low-wage paradise. What they really need is the logistical ability to go and a home country that will welcome them and set them up. You know, I, I have to confess, I, I find the current moment with Biden determined to start a war with China just a few years after the entire Democratic leadership couldn't have gone to China fast enough and take the jobs. You know, Obama's favorite corporation, General Electric, which has now exploded due to its own hubris and corruption, its internal corruption. But Jeff Immelt, who was the CEO during the, um, the Obama administration, he had a speech where he said, China, 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 China. And, you know, that was happening whether or not there was a NAFTA or a WTO. And I don't want to minimize the impact of these trade regimes, but you know, the thirst and the appetite for low wages is inexorable. And Just I think the element was his job czar. Yeah, no, exactly. That's right. So, I mean, you know, what a what a farcical, preposterous, outrageous thing when he picked him. And I, and I confronted, you know, I remember during that period, I confronted him. You know, my union, I was the WE representative and I had a significant hand in their bargaining with General Electric. And I confronted Immelt one day with a plant, a list of plant closings. He was telling Obama and all the media was repeating that this GE is growing again and all this. What rot. You know, I had the list and I confirmed, he just brushed it off and none of the media would even discuss it because Jeff Immelt said that they were growing, so they must be growing. Of course, everyone here is well acquainted with the grip of big business on our media by and large. <clears throat> but you know, I, I think, you know, the protectionism question, I think it's changed. I think we're at the point now where we're talking about reindustrializing. Uh, back on Joe Biden. Joe Biden, Biden, if he wants to start his war with China, that's great. We'll all be naked in just a couple of months because we don't manufacture anything to wear anymore. We'll all be walking around barefoot because we don't manufacture food. I mean, I could go on for an hour with all the different things. We won't so have I antibiotics. Yeah, this is, yeah, exactly. Now we have this problem, you know, with the, oh, it's all blamed on the supply chain. And I mean, again, if ever there was a situation where we need a national manufacturing strategy, other than what the, the businesses tell us they want to do, you know, this would be the day for it. But That's another wrap on big business, which progressive critics like to 
focus on the greed, the rapacity, uh, the audacity, but basically they've mismanaged the economy. They control the economy and they don't deliver. What they do is hollow out the economy, ship it overseas, repress what's left of it, and increase an economy making money from money instead of producing real things. So when the pandemic hit, we didn't have the most basic hospital supplies that were needed when the patients were streaming in, half dying, into hospitals all over the country. So they ought to be held responsible for the power they have and how they've misused it. They're not delivering for the American people. They're delivering for themselves and for the speculators, which is now what Business Week magazine once called casino capitalism. Well, if a worker today does manage to get into a union or form and start one, and that is successful, really a trade union today in the United States still has very, very limited power. It has the power in some circumstances to force an employer to stop doing things, and it has some power to force that employer to start doing things. We don't run things yet, but on the other hand, you know, that's a very important break on that unlimited power. That's what I refer to as the workplace dictatorship. But when you have 93, 95% of the workforce completely in the grip of the employer with a political elite, for the most part in both parties, who never say no to these corporations, can't be anti-business, you know, you have to cater to them. Otherwise, you know, Yet they all want to take credit for creating the jobs. That's one of the laughable speeches here. Uh, under my regime, we created five million jobs. Well, he didn't create any. He gave business uh, unlimited subsidies and tax relief so that they might create some. But in any case, this is really, you know, uh, I guess I just say that for perspective because uh, the trade union movement is demonized and, you know, caricatures are drawn of us that somehow we're some big threat or whatnot. No, if, if there's a salvation out there for working people, we are it. But it has to be, you know, revived. It has to be revitalized. And I should say, maybe this is mostly for Ralph's sake, but uh, my union, UE, where I spent 25 years, is experiencing today an enormous growth, which we hadn't experienced for decades. Uh, the union, uh, we just concluded, uh, I believe it was the 78th convention up in Pittsburgh. I went up as a volunteer to help the officer as a retiree. And we doubled in size in just this year with new organizing. And there's a whole explanation in what's going on and the changes that we've gone through. But this is a remarkable moment, also connected to this sort of radicalization of the younger workforce and their, they, their expression that they're done with working under these miserable and atrocious conditions. So it's one small example, but there hasn't been a small union that's revived and doubled in size in decades. Nobody would have predicted this. Do you think the United Electric Workers are going to endorse Cornell West if he gets the nomination for the Green Party? They endorsed my campaign in 2000. Yeah, no, I was, yes, we did. I was proud to push on that. And it was in Erie, Pennsylvania. You came to Erie, Pennsylvania. We had our convention there and it was, you know, a wonderful experience. In terms of West, I won't speak for UE. I'm retired now. They will certainly discuss it. Uh, and it, it's a, it's a different time in a certain way, but it's possible. It's possible. I, I would say there's probably, that's probably the only union that would even consider it as a fair question. The bulk of the labor unions wouldn't even consider it. As we see, you know, two-thirds of the AFL unions have already cast their lot with Biden, you know, which is 
I reminded some, I wrote about this a little bit, although nobody reads anything that I write of any great number. But, you know, the, the AFL-CIO early endorsement of Biden was unwise on so many levels, including they forgot the lesson of 1984 and Mondale and how Hart jumped into the race and Jackson jumped into the race, you know, at, towards the end and weakened him. He was a weak candidate anyway, and it just ended up paving the way for the second term of Reagan. And these kinds of cautions and historical knowledge and these things, uh, I think all of us here are confident that none of that got discussed in the rush job stampede to get the AFL to embrace Biden unconditionally, you know, a few months ago. And so I guess the theme here with so much of this is sort of the decay of things and the erosion of things in this country. It's a worrisome trend, but if you hit it head on, as I am prone to do, and Ralph, you certainly have over your decades, you know, done exactly the same thing. This is what we have to do to confront this slide into oblivion. Hannah? There's been a very aggressive push over the last 20, perhaps 30 years to push young people who will then become young workers into STEM fields or into higher education with the narrative that, you know, the way to the middle class is in STEM or through higher education. That's how you're going to advance your, your economic position. When in reality, I'm a millennial, famously, on the show. I'm the resident millennial. And instead, my generation is is less economically stable than the generations before. And STEM jobs are largely in emerging technologies in spaces that are ununionized and higher education sends you to office jobs or the nonprofit sector or jobs in in fields that are also ununionized and do you see a connection between this funneling of young people who then become young workers into unsustainable unstable employment and the current climate around organizing. Thank you for that, Hannah. And I'll say, I'll use myself as an example. I went to high school in central Pennsylvania in the middle 70s and got out of high school in 1979. There was no college in my future. I went right into the grind almost a week after I graduated. I'm in the grind. And here I am 44 years later. Now, what I didn't realize, and this is a heck of a thing to say, but I did better than many folks by the path that I chose. Today, young people are you know, one of the greatest frauds perpetrated on the working class is this myth that somehow you have to borrow a pharaoh's fortune of money in order to hope to get a college degree or a technical degree that then will enable you to live decently and pay all that back. And I hate to say this, and maybe it's another hallmark of a declining empire, but when I sit here and say to myself, you know, it really was a lucky thing that I was excluded from college and was not credit worthy to borrow the money because it forced me to find a different path. And that's really a sobering thing when you take the talented tenth of your nation or the talented 25% and you don't encourage it. Instead, you you saddle it with usurious student loans that may even be on a completely ill-advised basis for that individual. So I, I look and I consider myself as difficult as my life was with some of the jobs that I had and whatnot. I, I just think to myself, man, what would I be doing today 
And I think today, you know, our the titans of industry and government and academia and all this, I think what they're missing today, is, you know, we know what the challenges of the millennials are very well. And they are, as you know, Hannah, they are very real, difficult life challenges to have to deal with and overcome. But I have always felt like I'm part of that working class that never gets mentioned. I'm from the cohort that goes to jail. I'm from the cohort that just lives a marginal existence, ends up drug addicted, you know, and, uh, you know, look at the condition of the working class in the inner city. It's catastrophic. And this is sort of that hard nut of poverty and pathology that's never even dealt with today. And then, of course, the, the employers run around and claim they can't get anybody to work. Well, no, they can't get anyone to work for them if they've completely destroyed the public education system and the technical training situation. And then suddenly they expect this ready to go workforce to show up at their beck and call to work for wages that are half of what they should be with no benefits. Of course, that's not competitive to have that. And, and I'll mention, Hannah, for your generation, and I think this is part of what's feeding the general discontent is you get to be 35, 40, and then it does occur to you that at some point you're going to stop working. Maybe retire. What's the difference between the two? And with the coverage of real pensions having been so destroyed deliberately by corporate and government action so that real pensions are becoming a rarity, we've now set in motion an entire several generations of working people who are going to have to work until they drop. And I, I consider myself exceedingly fortunate. I came into some really major health issues. I was 55. I managed to limp along until I was 60 and I retired when I was 60. I have two pensions. I was able to retire. But by the Hundreds of millions, the, the workforce coming along will just work until they drop. If I had been forced to continue working, I would have had another heart attack when I was 58, 60, 62. And what a miserable thing to condemn somebody to an outrageous thing with the wealth of this country. You know, I, I guess I maybe we all share this. I, I just am always amazed at why people don't punch back, you know, or they don't understand that they even can punch back. I guess maybe that was a decision I made when I was a teenager and got cast into the... That truly is, is astounding. I'm watching this move by these crazed Republicans to shut the government down, and there's almost no protest around the country, losing jobs, losing federal contracts for construction, public services, benefits, social safety net checks. And there's no protest at all. It's like they're looking at a theater in Washington and sitting in the chairs. I think our democracy is one in its lowest ebb in its history. Chris, before you go, sure. I just wanted to say, I did not know that the term for salting was salting until prepping for this show. And <laughs> I had two roommates about 10 years ago who were salt, salt <laughs> at Walmart. And I just heard like, oh, yeah, we're, we're out of town for a couple of months. We're organizing for a union down in, I forget, one of the Carolinas, I think. And so I just, this I, I didn't even realize that I had salt in my sphere. Yeah, but... yeah. No, it's, it's far more common than any of you all would think. We have thousands of people out there that are salting. There's gradations of it in different situations. And there's a rough edge to it. But 
this is growing because of the young cohort of folks coming forward that are willing to challenge this corporate dictatorship. And we're having a session of the Inside School in Rochester, New York, just Friday, Friday through the weekend. And, you know, it's always amazing. And, you know, the AFL-CIO hasn't done anything recently. They declared, you might remember, they declared, Lou Shuler declared she was going to have a transformational organizing thing. It's been a year and a half. There's no sign of it. And here we, with our own money, our own time, some institutional support from ATU and Workers United, but mostly Richard Bensinger and myself, and a whole group of collective group of folks that just want to get out there and expand what the unions are doing and get into these workplaces. I mean, it really is remarkable to watch. You know? Well, we hope that all this salting gives these corporate dictators some high blood pressure. Oh, it is. It costs <laughs> them a lot of money, too. <laughs> and it's that's the fun part. Yeah, Steve, in the same workplace are the infiltrators. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, yeah. that's We call yeah. that plaque. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Next, Ralph critiques the Democrats on their relative unresponsiveness to citizen groups. Of course, one of your big issues with political figures, Congress at any level, is the, especially at the national level, is their unresponsiveness. And you've got a few choice words about that. Yeah, I mean, the undiscussed issue is how relatively progressive members of Congress don't respond to progressive citizen groups on the outside. And we've had that experience with people with whom we're friends, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren. They don't return our calls. Once in a while, I talk to Bernie because I have a cell phone and he says, oh, let's get together or let's do that. But he doesn't follow through. Elizabeth Warren is very hard to get through to. And Sherrod Brown, we tried to call him. He's chairman of the Senate Banking Committee to start seriously supporting and holding hearings on public banking, which has a lot of support in polls around the country at the state level, places like California. The governor of New Jersey has come out for it. And no response from him. We have Senator Blumenthal, my senator from Connecticut, promises corporate crime hearings to me in a telephone conversation after 12 weeks of trying to get through to him before and after the November elections. And we haven't had corporate crime hearings. They're holding hearings on the, the Saudi investment in the golfing industry, but not on corporate crime. And he's got the perfect committee for it in the Senate Oversight Subcommittee that he chairs. And then we're trying to get some more of the Democrats to demand Clarence Thomas' resignation. The former Supreme Court Justice, uh, Abe Fortas, he was forced to resign during the Johnson administration for just taking a foundation grant from a rich guy in Florida to one of Fortas's nonprofits. And uh, Clarence Thomas has done far more egregiously outrageous and unethical things, all these trips with billionaires and all the gifts he's accepted and and some of them he's not disclosed as he's required to do publicly. Well, you don't get much feedback on that. And it's just one thing after another. You know, you talk to Democrats, well, why don't you raise the issue of getting rid of the Trump tax cuts in 2017 that are creating such deficits and diminishing of revenue from the super rich and the big corporations? Well, you, you know, you House Ways and Means, no response. Senate Finance Committee, no response. This is when the Democrats controlled both houses. So why is it that all these citizen groups 
who are called by these members on these members' issues, and they want support, but they don't react to the issues that are far more fundamental proposed by citizen groups. How come these groups don't raise the issue publicly? Because they don't want to be seen as losing influence and not to be having a place at the table. Well, I don't agree with that. You got to put it on the table and call it what it is. And it's just getting worse and worse by the year as they, the members don't get penalized for it. They don't criticize for it. When we were fighting the air pollution fight in the early 70s, the chief supporter of the bill to control air pollution was Senator Ed Muskie, a Democrat of Maine. And he went soft on a couple of provisions. And we had a public press conference criticizing him. That's the only way they respect you is when you can go to the people. Otherwise, they take you for granted because you've shut yourself up, hoping for continuing access at a diminishing rate of significance. Well, Ralph, if I may interrupt, you mentioned the early 70s. This is, you know, your heyday at the height of your power. Isn't it just simply a power game that they will answer you if they feel they had to, that if there will be consequences for not doing that and answering to you in the 70s was necessary for them. And today, that's that's true. If they don't think we get press, if we criticize them, They'll continue business as usual and ignore us, and the press is not covering citizen groups. I've made that point on this program and exemplified it again and again. Yeah, I mean, we, we've tried to get three senators who have written books to come on the show. Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, Senator Klobuchar wrote a book on antitrust. Again and again, we invite them. They don't even come on. Sometimes they don't even respond to our invitations. So this thing's got to become a major issue among the national citizen groups with all the members they have back home supporting them to be bold and to stand up. And if they can't get press, there are other ways to make their allies in Congress feel shameful and neglectful. But they don't push the envelope, the citizen groups. And now Ralph, David, Steve, and Hannah have a few more thoughts on the state of the Republican Party. First, they almost pushed the U.S. government to close down with all the cessation of benefits, contracts, health and safety protections, everything suspended. And now they've closed down the House of Representatives because they're responsible for those renegades. They closed down the House of Representatives. So how's that going to play among independent voters who haven't made up their mind for 2024? What are your reactions from the hustings? Well, from the hustings out here in California, where Kevin McCarthy's from, he's from Bakersfield. And yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think it's hard to tell how this plays, whether people make the connections or whether they see chaos in government and blame government and think, okay, who's in charge of the government? Well, that's Joe Biden. So he's got to go. I think maybe that's part of the strategy is to just show people or try to fulfill the prophecy that government doesn't work. Right. I agree with you. I think this is, in a way, January 6th Act 2 in the service of Trump. Ralph, do you think that the whole idea is... Well, remember, remember, David, we're talking about, say, 10% of the voters switching, and that decides the election decisively. So you got independent voters who are undecided, And they say, look, you know, at least the government stays open under the Democrats. At least the House of Representatives 
stays open. You know, these people are crazy. They let these renegades run them. They can't control their own party. I'm not voting for them. You know, that kind of reflection. By the way, I do have a comment to make on some of the listeners' reactions. Some of the most vigorous ones are anonymous. You should put your name behind your comment. AA work S82. What are you afraid of? Put your name there. The same with double slit. Put your name there. We shouldn't recognize on the air any commentary from listeners who don't put their name on their comment. This anonymity of the internet is leading to the vast majority of vicious and nasty commentary and exchanges. If they had to put their name behind their opinion, they would think twice and be more reflective and maybe not make the nasty comment to begin with that often is an impulse. Ralph, do you think that part of the kind of knee-jerk responses to your statements about Biden, do you think a part of the response to that could be like, look at all the unprecedented things that are happening? I mean, the double impeachment, now we have you know, the speaker being ousted by a vote for the first time ever. Like it isn't, it, this isn't just politics as usual. This is actually unprecedented. And do you think some of the criticism maybe fails to take that into account? Well, you don't know what leads to people saying things. You know, the comments are very abbreviated, Hannah. So you don't know what broader context that you're referring to our work here. So all I can react to are just the abbreviated comments. I mean, there's There's someone called Sep 30 who says Nader calling President Putin, quote, a dictator and brutal, quote, is ill-informed. Apart from that, this is great commentary by Stephen Kinzer. Thanks. Well, what do you make of that? I mean, Kinzer basically didn't justify the criminal invasion by Putin of Ukraine. He made a big deal of Russia being provoked by expanding NATO's military alliance to include the countries in Eastern Europe bordering on Russia and putting U.S. soldiers and weaponry right in these countries near the Russian border, a country that has been invaded twice in the 20th century from that border with 50 million fatalities among the Russian people and destruction of much of their country. I have a total pivot question. Do we need a Speaker of the House? Like, what if we went the, like, novelty mayor route and picked, like, a dog or a baby? Like, what is the actual function of the Speaker? Like, if the Speaker of the House was not a thing? If I heard you right, Hannah, the the Speaker has to be a person. The Constitution (laughs) only refers to persons. And no matter how much your father, David, loves the dog Triumph, He's not qualified under the Constitution to become Speaker of the House. I would never endorse Triumph. You know, he smokes constantly. He is a puppet, Ralph. It would be a health and safety. Most speakers, puppets. It would be a health and safety. (laughs) Cigar smoke in the workplace. David, most speakers don't have four paws. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis. October 1st marked the first day of fiscal year 2024 in Washington, D.C., and with it, D.C.'s cashless ban finally goes into effect, per Axios. Now, district residents will be able to report businesses that do not accept cash and or those who post signage saying they will not accept cash. If any listeners out there are based in Washington and wish to report any such businesses, 
feel free to submit them to me at francesco.desantis at csrl.org. And remember, if you see something, say something. Democracy Now! reports that Federal Communications Commission Chair Jessica Rosenworcel has gone on record saying she plans to restore net neutrality rules, which would, quote, bar internet providers from blocking access or throttling customers' connections based on how much they pay or which websites they visit, end quote. These were repealed under the Trump administration. This follows Democrats finally taking majority control of the commission. Common Cause remarked, quote, to allow a handful of monopoly-aspiring gatekeepers to control access to the internet is a direct threat to our democracy. Brazilian President Lula has issued a statement in support of the United Auto Workers' strike. Lula, who himself worked as a union organizer at the Brazilian automobile manufacturing facilities of auto giants like Ford, Volkswagen, and Toyota, made this statement after meeting with President Biden and seeing him take to the picket line in support of the striking workers. Lula added, quote, It is crucial that presidents all around the world show concern for labor, end quote. More about Lula's history with automobile labor unions is available at the Multinational Monitor. Despite concerns raised by high-ranking Democrats in Congress, the Biden administration has approved Israel's entry into the visa waiver program, meaning Israelis can now visit the U.S. for up to 90 days without a visa, and Americans can do the same. However, the Middle East Eye reports that the Arab-American Anti-Discrimination Committee plans to challenge this decision in court, as Israel may not meet the legal criteria for the program due to their discrimination against Palestinian Americans. Huwaita Araf, a lawyer representing the ADC, added, quote, This is all so unnecessary. All the U.S. government had to do was maintain the standard it has with every other country in the visa waiver program. This lawsuit could have been avoided, but the Department of Homeland Security and the State Department resurrected and the debunked notion that separate is somehow equal. As these plaintiffs show, that notion is a farce. The Sacramento Bee reports California Governor Gavin Newsom has vetoed two major pro-labor bills that emerged late in this session of the state legislature. One would have granted unemployment insurance to striking workers, a push which emerged in the face of the extended entertainment industry strikes. The other would have brought domestic workers under, quote, the umbrella of OSHA protections, quote. These vetoes were handed down along with Newsom's decision to appoint LaFonza Butler, head of Emily's List and a Maryland resident, to fill the Senate seat left vacant by Dianne Feinstein's passing. On October 1st, the State Department issued a statement decrying, quote, anti-democratic actions in Guatemala, end quote, directed at President-elect Bernardo Arevalo and his Samia party. The statement expresses that, quote, the United States is gravely concerned with continued efforts to undermine Guatemala's peaceful transition of power. Most recently, the Guatemalan public ministry seizing electoral materials under the custody of the Supreme Electoral Tribunal, end quote, and goes on to add that, quote, the United States is actively taking steps to impose visa restrictions on individuals who continue to undermine Guatemala's democracy, including current and former members of Congress, judicial actors, and any others engaging in such behavior. The Guatemalan people have spoken. Their voice must be respected. PBS reports that during a recent meeting between American officials and Mexican President AMLO, the latter levied scathing criticisms of U.S. foreign policy, including the mammoth aid packages for Ukraine and economic sanctions on Cuba, Venezuela, and other Latin American nations. President López Obrador said the United States, quote, should spend some of the money sent to Ukraine on economic development in Latin America, 
and called for a U.S. program, quote, to remove blockades and stop harassing independent and free countries, an integrated plan for cooperation so the Venezuelans, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Ecuadorans, Guatemalans, and Hondurans wouldn't be forced to emigrate. The Japan Times reports that, quote, the Japanese government plans to seek a court order to disband the Unification Church after a months-long probe into the religious group over allegations of soliciting financially ruinous donations from members and other questionable practices, end quote. This report goes on to say, quote, scrutiny of the group intensified after former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was fatally shot during an election campaign speech last year over his perceived links to the entity, an incident which also brought to light its connections with many ruling Liberal Democratic Party lawmakers. Finally, Disney World is being hit with a substantial tort lawsuit. A woman visiting the park for her 30th birthday suffered, quote, serious gynecologic injuries, end quote, while on the Humunga Kawabunga ride. I will spare listeners the grisly details, but suffice it to say she experienced, quote, severe and permanent bodily injury, end quote, which required surgery per law and crime. Yet, in typical fashion, corporate media reportage on tortious injury, the story is being presented primarily as nothing more than a, quote, wedgie, end quote, just as the McDonald's lawsuit was reported as merely being about hot coffee. A deep dive into that case is available at the Tort Museum website. This has been Francesco DeSantis with In Case You Haven't Heard. And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour when we welcome back anti-nuclear activist Harvey Wasserman. Until next time. Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way.